is Prince Charming? You are the Prince Charming of my life, baby, and come and fuck me right now. And you're listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And you just heard right there The Smugglers from 1990, recorded at Conrad Uno's Egg Studios and Seattle Bound. And before that, a tiny snippet of Kim of the Muffs. And today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Coming up, The Muffs and an interview with Grant Lawrence of The Schmugglers. Yes, The Schmugglers are playing a reunion show, a book launch for Grant's new book, Dirty Feet. I, I thought I thought I said dirty fingernails, dirty windshields tomorrow night at the Commodore in Vancouver. So we're going to have The Schmugglers. We're going to have Kim of the Muffs, you heard the Schmugglers, Seattle Bound. And we are also going to have an interview with this gentleman right here. Who are you? Um, I'm Larry Livermore. Of? Uh, Berkeley, California. Of? Um, my mom and dad. No, of Larry of the Potato. Oh, I'm uh, playing here in Vancouver with the Potato Men tonight. The Potato Men. The, the Potato Men, no. From Berkeley, California. Primarily from Berkeley, California. Yeah. Berkeley, California. Yes, that's that's right. In Santa Rosa too. Yeah, we we have some upstart members from other locations too, but our our heart is in Berkeley. And Larry, what is your age? Uh, I'm 47. And we also have in the Potato Man. Uh, Adam. And how old how old are you, Adam? 21. 
Who is this guy we are talking about? Who is Larry Livermore? You. Who are you? I thought the question was, where are you? Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, who? Uh, could you speak into the mic, please? I um, thought I was. Uh, I, I, um, used to, I used to be in this business, but uh, this mic doesn't seem to be uh, recording me too well. Uh, uh, sorry. Who are you? <laughs> um, I'm the guy that they were just singing about. I am Larry. You are Larry Livermore. Um, they didn't say that in the song, but I am that Larry, yeah. And that was the Smugglers, right? That was the Smugglers, and uh, it sure is great to hear them sing about anything, but especially when it's about yourself, that's uh, even greater. Uh, Larry, where are you? I am in the studio at CITR uh, Vancouver with the 
inimitable and illustrious Nardwar the Human Serviette. And before that, we heard a tiny clip of you talking to me from Crosstown Traffic in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, from January 27th, 1995, 22 years ago. I Do you remember I was, that? I thought I was going to have to remind you of it. Uh, it's a funny thing because somebody just tweeted uh, that uh, when they heard that I was going to be on the radio with you, they said, oh, I've been waiting for as long as I can remember to hear an interview with Nardwar and Larry. And uh, she was obviously too young to remember that there was one once before. And uh, I'm not sure if you're talking about the same one, because I remember conducting an interview on the sidewalk outside of uh, wherever the— uh, It was Crosstown Traffic. But it was wherever the uh, hockey team played at that time. I, I'm Oh, it could have been. Because we got interrupted mid-interview by a bunch of drunken hockey fans that wanted to know why you were interviewing me and who the heck I was, and you convinced them very convincingly that I was somebody really famous down in the States to the point where one of them actually asked for my autograph and another said, oh yeah, I think I've seen you on TV. That was, I think, in front of Crosstown Traffic. It could well have been. It, it was it on the sidewalk. They it, might have been walking to a hockey game. No, we were standing. We were standing. Uh, oh, the, the, the people interrupted. The crowd had just left the hockey game. What could have that been? January 1995, or it could have been early 1995. Well, I would, it sounds like uh, that's probably the Potato Man gig that we were just talking about uh, before we went on air, where we played with uh, Plum Tree and, and Mao. And I think, oh, that that other band that's like the Evaporators that's not the Evaporators. <laughs> I can't remember. There's, there's, was it something to do with ska? Um, I have no idea. But it was. Who are you, Larry? What band was that? And what bands have you been in? And I've what only... did you? What did I tell those people on the street? You just told them that. Um, I was a, a really important media person and something or another. In fact, you acted like they must be really ignorant if they didn't know who I was. Um, like, don't you ever, you, you said to them, don't you ever look at TV? Don't you ever read the paper? You don't know who this man is? Uh, um, and they kind of bought it, but they were drunk. And you were in town playing with your band. I was, yeah. The Potato Man on Lookout Records. Yes, we were on Lookout Records, but then, to be fair, and, and some people have pointed this out, that we also owned the label, so it wasn't as big of an accomplishment to get on Lookout Records as it might have been for some other unknown band like Green Day or, uh, you know, this Mr. T experience. It was pretty amazing from cross-town traffic to here, to CITR, 22 years it's taken to get you out to CITR. Amazing. Welcome, Larry I have Livermore. been to CITR before. Nobody nobody remembers me. I, I didn't see any plaque. Uh, oh, that's right. You said you tore down the old station and built a new one. But I remember being there in, back in the 90s. seemed like everything happened in the 90s. You did attend, though, the Sex Pistols in San Fran. You were actually at that gig? Yes, I was. I unfortunately missed the opening bands, and I missed the first four songs by the Sex Pistols, and they didn't play that long, but uh, because I was in a play that night. Um, and so, What play? It's kind of embarrassing. It was actually a play that I had written and produced myself, um, but I wasn't, I'm not an actor. I wasn't meant to act in it, but... One of the actors 
got appendicitis right before curtain time or or he just was sick to his stomach because he didn't like to play. I couldn't say for sure. At any rate, at the last minute, I had to step in and take his place. And luckily, we were able to place copies of the script all around a set. It was like a living room. And I was able, whenever I couldn't remember the lines, to sort of pick up a magazine as if I were perusing a magazine and, and learn my lines. So I remember that night in January 78, we all of us wanted to go to the Sex Pistols, but the play was scheduled to, you know, it was running right into our going to the Sex Pistols time. So we set all the lines really, really fast, and we got the play done in about half hour faster than it usually took. And then we dashed over to Winterland and, and saw, well, what was, you know, the, the best part of band the you ever saw, the Sex Pistols? Oh, no. It was a up to that point. It was a, it was an exciting show, but it's funny because a couple of days later, the uh, college local college station KUSF played a, a live tape of the show, and it was awful. I mean, it was everything. It was and God Save the Queen. They had a spectacular bad note, and I mean, Sid was not in good shape at all. I mean, I, my most vivid memory of the show actually was a somebody hit him in the forehead with a uh, a full can of beer, and you could literally see his. Uh, an indentation made into his forehead and and the beer bouncing off and spilling and 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 he just said oh don't hurt me um, that that made a bigger impression on me than the music but you know the energy was pretty intense what did you look like what did i look like probably about the same as as now um i've probably gained a little weight since then i uh yeah well cuz i you know cuz of being in a play i had to look semi normal an unrelated segment punched you in the chest? Stomach. In the ch- stomach. Yeah. That was in Detroit. The garage band, the unrelated segments. The, Amazing. They're, they're one well, of, not, one of, one yeah, of them uh, grew, grew up next two, two doors down from me. Um, and they used to practice in the garage or the basement. And But this was long before that. This would be in the 50s when I... I was five and he was four and I was mousing off to him as I've been known to do from time to time. And I I thought I was being very clever and he just suddenly hit me in the stomach. And that was the first time I'd ever had the wind knocked out of me. It was very frightening and, and scary. And uh, it was the first time I realized my mouse could get me in trouble and not always get me out of it. But we, we, re- we remain friends through the years. And unrelated segments, they're quite a band, aren't they? Yeah, he was, before that, he was in the Pawns, which was, you know, there was a huge uh, explosion of, of garage music in Detroit starting around 1964 and 65. Um, I was not able to participate fully in it because, for one reason, I couldn't play an instrument. For another, I had the wrong haircut. Um, I had a greaser haircut, and changing or giving up your greaser haircut had a carried a heavy penalty if you were seen by the wrong people in the wrong neighborhood. So basically I had to sneak around uh from from band practice I would like comb my hair down and then go down to the street corner where the gang was and had to comb back up again and so I could never fully commit. The, uh, so they they tried to get me to play once with the pawns which was like I said a predecessor to the unrelated segments. Uh I was too nervous. It would be another uh 20 years before I I got serious about having a band of my own. What about the Satellites? Did they ever record? They were another local garage band in Detroit. Oh, you know the Satellites. Did they ever record? They, uh, I don't think so. Uh, remember, back then it was not so easy to make a de- demo tape. But the Satellites lived the next street over from me. And, uh, and you thought they were possibly better than the MC5? Well, they won the, they won the Battle of the Bands. 
So they beat the MC5. Yeah, it was the finals was between them and the MC5. And uh, but to be fair, it was uh, it was in a, a public park near where we lived, and so. It was kind of home turf for the satellites. The MC5 lived about a mile away on the other side of the railroad tracks, and so I like—I I don't know—I liked them both. I kind of cheered for the satellites because they were our neighbors, but the MC5 were pretty good. They made a big impression on me. I—I I write about them in my book how they were uh, exerted this huge influence because although they were just working class kids of my own age. They managed somehow to have converted themselves just by the way they dressed and carried themselves into into rock stars, even though nobody had ever heard of them at that point. They had they played uh, they they claimed they played something called Avon rock, and I was like, "What the heck is that?" I no, I didn't I was too embarrassed to ask, so I I said, "Well, it must be because they play sort of English style music, and it's probably like Shakespeare and Stratford on Avon and all." It turned out that they had read a book about the avant garde. And they didn't know how to pronounce Avant, so they assumed it was Avon, and just they'd make up this Avant rock thing. And uh, that's so they had they had a whole shtick. This would have been probably '64 or '65, um, I think '65. And it was a couple of years before they whole changed their whole look and got into the hippie revolutionary thing. Livermore, did you ever go to the White Panther House in SF? In SF, no. The one in Ann Arbor I spent a lot of time at, but the one in SF I don't think I did. I think that they were not an authorized branch, as I recall. You love Vancouver, B.C., the Sylvia Hotel. Why do I get associated with Sylvia? I'm not sure I've ever stayed there. I think Grant of the Smugglers playing tomorrow night at the Commodore, a reunion show, always says that Larry loves the Sylvia. I I think it looks nice, but honestly, and I've met and hung out with Grant there before, but I don't think I ever stayed there. I always used to stay at a much cheaper hotel just down the block on uh, on Denman Street uh, called the English Bay Hotel, which is, uh, well, it it does the trick. It's got good views, and it's uh, I don't I haven't st- I didn't stay there this time. How did you meet Grant, the Clark Kent of rock and roll? Was it through the band Cub? I believe it's through the band Cub. Well, Nardwire, known for many things, and research is certainly one of them, and I'm ready to attest that you're almost certainly correct about that. I believe it was in uh, at, a, at a punk rock show in the elite part of the town of Manila, California, uh, in probably 1994, maybe 1993. Uh, the main thing I remember about Grant at that time was those boots, those, uh, I think in, uh, in England they call them wellies, the rubber boots. And uh, he see, maybe he wasn't wearing them, but I picture him wearing them. Uh, he was actually, I think, the roadie. Dave Carswell was playing drums yeah, for a cub, and Grant was the roadie. So, so there were no boots involved. Don't be so sure of that. Uh, I visu- vividly remember him wearing rubber boots. Now, it could be just a projection, but it's what he, that's how I remember him. I remember him also being talkative, but not, not like what you would expect of a rock star. He was more, he was eager to communicate and to learn, but I, the reason I called him the Clark Kent of rock and roll was those those glasses of, of his. It was almost as if the moment he took them off, he turned into this incredible high-powered dervish, uh, you know, at the front of probably the best live band I have ever seen, uh, you know, big or small, 
anywhere. And it, but I remember vividly at that time, well, the first time I saw him with the smuggler, I was like, hey, these guys seem like they're pretty accomplished musicians. They, they're talented, uh, professional. Well, I wonder why they got this kind of nerdy guy with the, the glasses who's so, so soft-spoken and everything. How could he be the front man? And then off came the glasses and jump up on the stage, and it was like insanity. Uh, it was like really like two personalities. I, like Over the years, like Grant has kind of merged the two personalities to where he's like always a little bit crazy, but all with, always within bounds. I mean... He's kind of an amazing guy, uh, that, that Grant Lawrence is. He's probably one of the only people I know who keeps getting younger over the years. When he, when he was, I first met him with the Smugglers, he seemed like an, the old man of the band then. I think he was probably in his early 20s. And I don't know how old he is now, but he seems more kid-like than ever now. And people can see Grant tonight. Could you explain what's up, dog, on Hastings Street? You, Larry Livermore, are going to be doing are, a reading. Are Who you, are you, Larry? Are you sure that's called what's up, dog? I think it's what's up, hot dog. Uh, 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 well, actually, maybe it, I call it hot dog. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I knew it had something to do with or hot dog. Or, I knew it had something to do with hot dog. Um, but as far as I know, they're having kind of a, a welcome uh, Grant is reading from his newly released book, Dirty Windshields, right? Uh, that's what they tell me, but I, I think they're also having some guest readers. That's what I read on the and program. you are one of the readers. No, you I, are Larry I, I Livermore, think I think right? it's different. I think the guest readers are going to read sections out of Grant's book, and I'm supposed to either read or talk about my own book. Maybe, maybe Grant will ask me to read something from his book, too. Uh, I wouldn't put it past him. He might, he might ask me to read part where he talks about me, but I haven't, uh, I don't know yet if he talks about me or if he does what he says about me. But nonetheless, you and Grant will be at What's Up Dog, yes, I call it Dog, on Hastings tonight and tomorrow night, Dirty you, Windshields. You, you call it Eastings? Hastings Street. No, I thought, I thought you, well, it's East Hastings Street, so I thought maybe you contracted into Eastings, which would be kind of cool, actually. Oh, that's amazing. I probably just left out the H, but I think of it as what's up, dog, on Hastings. You, who are you again, for people that are wondering? Sorry? Who are you? Um, you are Larry Livermore, right? Yeah, that uh, is the persona that I have inhabited for quite a few years now. Author of the book, what is your book called? What are your books called? I have two books. The first one was called Spy Rock Memories, and that's about how I went to live in the wilderness of Northern California and ended up... Uh, starting a band, and a, a punk rock band and a record label, even though there was no electricity, and meeting a, a kid who would play in my band and then later in uh, the band Green Day. And the second book, which was after, uh, about, it's called How to Run or How to Ruin a Record Label, and that's about what happened when I came down from the mountain and moved uh, back to Berkeley, California, to have this little record label with uh, you know, including my own band and that that kid that had joined my band had now joined Green Day and I put out their records and a bunch of other other bands and it became kind of a big deal. And then it then it wasn't anymore. And that's what the book's about. Larry Livermore from Lookout Records is live on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. Also phoning in will be the Muffs, who are playing tomorrow night as well, and Grant Lawrence from the Schmugglers, who are playing tomorrow night at the Commodore as part of Grant Lawrence's Dirty Windshields book release. I was curious, since you go way, way, way back with Trey Crook, 
Trey Cruel. That's people. Take, call, did you just call him Trey Cruel? That's what I. That's what I. That's what I was thinking. I, I, you wouldn't be the first, but uh, I haven't. I haven't heard that in a while. He's actually. Uh, very nice these days. He's a very nice guy, although I have tried to interview him for 22 years and no luck. The closest I got was at a Jimmy Eat World gig while I was interviewing Jimmy Eat World, and he yelled at me, ah, from the bus. He got out the window and yelled out the, at me through the, bu- through the bus window. But I was curious, Larry Livermore, having early contact with Trey Cool, like you basically got him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I wrote all his songs for him and taught him how to, no. I, but he was your drummer, so you started the Rock I, and I, Roll bug with him, right? I did, I did give him his first drum lesson. So you, in a weird way. To be fair, I don't know how to play drums, but uh, I gave him his first few lessons and then he played in our band for five and a half years. And so, like, the guy that you invited to play drums for your band is now in the rock and roll. Nobody Hall of else, fame. nobody else was dumb enough to want or crazy enough to want to play in my band. I, so I had to get a 12 year old. That's amazing. We have the gentleman responsible for Trey Cool right here on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And that was your band, Larry, the Lookouts. And I wanted to ask you, what is going on in this picture right here? I'm, oh, that's. Can you, you describe this thing is, I've had? To that do? is Camp Winter Rainbow, which is, I don't know if uh, Canadians will be so familiar with. Uh, well, he was part of Woodstock, right? That's right. The 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 guy which don't you eat, were at the guy don't eat the brown acid. Uh, at that time, his name was Hugh Romney. He later changed his name to Wavy Gravy and became a clown and hooked up with the whole Grateful Dead uh, kind of under underground scene. And they bought a huge piece of land uh, near Laytonville, which was also near our mountain, Spy Rock. And uh, it's called Camp Winter Rainbow. And when Trey and, and my niece and nephew, who also grew up there, were children, they used to go to this camp. And Trey was still going there when he was a teenager. In fact, they used to have the drummer from the Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart, used to come down and do workshops and he uh, he, he, he taught Trey a few things, I imagine, or maybe the other way around. Um, but it was horribly embarrassing because um, when the lookout started playing gigs we would have to go to hippie day camp and pick up Trey <laughs> to take to go play the gigs and you know we had to drive through all of these hippies and tie-dyes and things and there would be Trey in the middle of some kind of drum circle or puppet workshop and we'd say Trey come on we gotta go play a punk rock gig and he'd get oh, okay bye guys and I just I think one of those times uh it's a it's a little bit embarrassed. well I, we were going up to Eureka which is a kind of a hard scrabble trucking and farmer town uh about 100 miles north and I, it's the first time we'd played that far away and I said Trey you can't go, get up to your usual antics when we're up here in uh, Eureka these people are serious they have rifles in their back of their pickups that'll shoot you so just stay in the car while whatever we do and then I was pumping gas and I and I, t- I told our bassist keep Trey in the car but I came back to the car and no Trey and I said where is he and our bass player just shrugged his shoulders and the next thing I heard this big commotion over on the other side of the gas station and there's a bunch of farmers and truck drivers standing around Trey who's maybe 14 years old at the time and a pair of underpants on his head and he's going he's pointing at them all and going bow down to me I am king underpants you are my slaves and servants bow down I am king underpants and I basically had to 
quickly drag him. They, was he naked? No, no, he had clothes on. Just the under the the white uh, tidy whiteies on his head. And unfortunately, I had to bear some responsibility for this because I had told the guys in the band about when I was a little kid of six or eight. I used to do the same trick to to my brothers and sister. I would declare myself king underpants and and make them bow down. So he had heard that from me and. Uh, it uh, luckily we got out of alive, but uh, it was scary. That particular picture oh, was yeah. given to me by Ad Ad, and he is in there, and he is a me in that picture. But you can see Trey in that picture. Maybe you could describe to people the picture that Ad Ad has given me that I've had for twenty two years. I'm, I'm looking here to see if my niece and nephew um, are in this picture too. They probably are, but since they all have makeup and stuff on, I couldn't tell for sure. My my niece actually has become a famous um, comic uh, graphic novelist uh, herself called Gabrielle Bell. She did the cover for my first book, but she's got five books of her own. Uh, uh, and she, she used to go there. But if I spend all day looking at this picture, I, if we had a TV camera, I'd hold it up. But uh, What I thought is really incredible is the lookouts, your band, the lookouts, which turned into Lookout Records and, of course, Lookout Fanzine, you competed with Jerry Garcia for Draw. That was a chagrinning. I don't know chagrinning. For Draw, like the Lookouts versus Cherry Garcia. Yeah, it was a very kind of upsetting because I was expecting this to be the biggest punk rock show in the history of Humboldt County. Um, Humboldt County, for locals who aren't familiar with it, is a, a very vast rural place in the the north of California, mostly wilderness and marijuana growers. But um, we put on what I thought would be an amazing show. And the lookouts were kind of a big draw because we were local. But we also had Screeching Weasel and the Mr. T Experience and and Green Day. Um, But the hall was no more than half full at any given point, which was really disappointing. And then I discovered afterwards that a couple miles down the road, there was a Jerry Garcia concert and much of our audience had deserted us in favor of Jerry Garcia. I like that you had high standards. It was like, we can take on Jerry. I didn't even know he was playing. <laughs> it's amazing. You mentioned the Mr. T experience. This record on Discogs as list, is listed as part of Lookout Records. What can you say about this record here? It's uh, t- which record is this? This is the very first Mr. T Experience record. It's called Everybody's Entitled to Their Own Opinion. And actually that uh, title came out of an interview I did with Mr. T Experience for Comet Bus Fanzine back in 1986 uh, when I was asking him. Well, a lot of people say you guys aren't a serious band. Uh, you know, you're not a real punk band because you sing about goofy things. And their bass player said, well, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And I said, well, that sounds like a good album title and ended up being it. Uh, They originally put it out themselves on their own, uh, what was it called, Disorder Records. And then, as I was telling you before we went on air, Lookout, when when David and I were starting Lookout, we basically copied everything off the record cover, uh, you know, where to get it recorded, where to master it, where to have it pressed, and... I, even our band name is on the one of the flyers on the back. And so basically, if without that record, we probably wouldn't have known how to start a record label. And then a f- few years later, the Mr. T Experience were in need of a record label. So we were honored to take them on to look out and we re-released their early records, including this one. So it's a now a lookout release. 
we are going to hear right now, I'm in love with Paula Pierce from the Pandoras, because John Vaughn was in love with Paula Pierce. I believe he was. And of course, Kim from the Pandoras is playing tomorrow night at, at the, the Commodore. Commodore with the Smugglers and Needles and Pins and Chicks Chick Dig it. it, who toured for years on a cassette, on a cassette. And then they got signed to Sub Pop. Or, and then I think a lot of. they went on Fat Records. Uh, uh, first was on Sub Pop. So first was on Sub Pop and then was on Fat. But we're going to hear right now, I'm in love with Paula Pierce. Do you want to say anything about this era of the Mr. T experience? I did not know that that came from an interview you did with them. But John Vaughn eventually left the Mr. T experience. Well, eventually everybody left the Mr. T experience except for Dr. Frank. Uh, but at this era, and a lot of people will say this was the, not, not a lot, Certain people, connoisseurs like myself, will say this was the the, the prime era of the Mr. T experience because there was this kind of dichotomy and tension between, you know, Dr. Frank was the more pop guy and uh, John Vaughn was the more garage guy. And together, I mean, they each had their own songs, but it, it fit together to keep the keep a lot of surprises coming. And another little thing, little known thing about those guys is that they were DJs on uh, our local uh, radio station Calix or K-A-L-X in Berkeley and at a time when everybody else was playing artsy sludge rock and pretentious college stuff those guys along with another DJ called Kenny Chaos the, that trio was the only ones playing anything like pop punk and kind of kept the spirit alive until until uh, Gilman and Lookout and all that stuff came along and later in the 80s so it, the the GJs came first then the band then the whole East Bay pop punk explosion. Here we have the Mr. T experience with I'm in Love with Paula Pierce with special guest DJ Larry Livermore.
And you are still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show with special guest DJ Larry. Nevermore. Oh, what did we just hear right there, Larry? Could you explain, please, what were you playing on that? Um, I was playing one of the guitars. Um, it's one of my favorite lookout songs, but it's also got it's tinged with uh, bittersweet uh, tragedy, I guess you could say, because it also spelled the beginning of the end of the lookouts. Um, I, I'm not a great guitar player, just adequate at best, so I thought I would spice up the uh, recording by inviting in uh, a young Billy Joe uh, from whose band was just starting to get known at that time. Well, actually, they weren't known yet, but they'd uh, done a record. Uh, Billy Joe Armstrong came in and played guitar and uh, sang backing vocals on that song, and it turned out, it was in the summer of 1990, it turned out to be uh, the first time that he and Trey had ever got together in the studio and played music together on, on that particular song. And about two months later, uh, Green Day lost their original drummer and came looking for a new one. And they, well, at first they just borrowed ours, but they didn't give them back. So that was the end of uh, the lookouts and uh, the beginning of the modern day Green Day. When you heard that Green Day had signed to Warner Brothers, did you get a uh, inkling of what their music would be like and did you hear Aprilie's cassette of Dookie? Um, I was a CD but yeah I, I did hear uh, a pre-release one plus I'd heard some of the songs uh, both live and on, on cassette like a year before not all of them but some of them but honestly Dookie was not that different uh, from what we'd done on Lookout, just with a, a what was your feeling when you heard that pre-release cassette? Uh, did you think they'd signed to major? Did you feel that they had the hits for um, major? I I felt that in back back in 1988 when I first saw them playing in a in a, a cabin for for five kids on a you know up in the mountains uh, when they were like 16 years old and had only played three or four shows. Uh, it took literally a few minutes, and I said, these guys could be one of the biggest bands in the world. And as soon as they finished playing, I said, you guys want to make a record? And Billy just sort of said, oh, yeah, well, I guess, sure, why not? And that was a, a few months later, we put out their first single. I always thought that if they played their cards right and kept working hard and didn't make the mistakes that a lot of bands make, they, they could be like the biggest band of, uh, of our generation. So from a pre-release cassette or CD, did you hear hits? Because I heard a pre-release cassette and CD, and I thought, oh, you will continue to sell, but you will not sell, like, in the <laughs> millions. I was totally wrong, and I've said that over and over again. It's like I heard a pre-release cassette of Dookie, but I did not imagine 16 million. What is it up to now? Is oh, it, uh, it's probably I don't know worldwide. Well, it's probably twenty or a million or more. I don't I don't know. I don't. I'm not, luckily I'm not their accountant, uh, so I. It's a lot, um, and it, even even though in some ways American Idiot probably has more cultural impact, I, I'm pretty sure Dookie is the best seller that they ever put out. But I remember it's funny you say that about the hits because uh, I remember having a spirited argument with Trey uh, about what they should do for their first single off of, uh, of Dookie. And, and I said, you should do that Welcome to Paradise, you know, which was a remake of an earlier version they'd done for Lookout, because then you could, it's like got social commentary. Everybody thinks Green Day is just a silly, fun punk band, just sings about girls and stuff. And you could do that uh, Welcome to Paradise, which is about ghetto life and the decline of Western or American civilization. And 
And Trey says, yeah, that would be cool. Nah, I, I want to drive a car into a swimming pool. And, and and so instead they did Longview, which was my least favorite song off the record, but which, of course, turned out to be a massively successful single. So, you know, I had to accept that maybe my judgment was not as sharp as I thought it was because I that that was the that was the song that launched them. Even I remember uh, that later that year I was uh, wandering down a, a street in some back roads in the back part, a deserted part of uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, and and I heard it coming out of a surplus uh, store. Was that that song? And I go, okay, yep. I may not have liked that song that much at first, but it's part of the American and the worldwide psyche now. Larry, when did you first feel at Lookout that you had more mail order as a result from Green Day? Well, actually, our, our first— How quickly? Our first band was uh, Operation Ivy, which was— 2,000 a week! 2,000 a, a year, and then seven years later, 2,000 a week, 2,000 copies being sold. They were our biggest band by far. It took Green Day until 1994 to, to pass them up, even though Green Operation Ivy had been broken up since 1989. Um, I tell you, I, I, I thought that if there was any justice in the world, maybe anybody in order to succeed in a record business has to think like this, but I felt like if there was any justice, several of our bands would be among the biggest bands anywhere. And the reason I started a label was because I said, this is the best music that's being made right now in 1987 and 1988. And I'm, I cannot find anything nearly as good as this in the record stores or uh, on the radio. So I'm going to guess I'm going to have to make my own records. And that's how I felt about it right from the beginning. I didn't know for sure it would happen, but I knew that it deserved to happen and that, that these bands deserved to be heard around the world. And at least some of them were. Was Lookout in the malls? Were you in the malls? Was Mortem the key, Mortem Distro? Were you in the malls at that time? Oh, no, that took a while. In fact, it took us a while even to get on Mordam. Um, I went, David and I went to see Mo, uh, Ruth at Mordam at the beginning and said, hey, we're starting a label. Will you please distribute us because we're punk and we're local? And she was like, nah, you guys are too small. I, I, I have too many small labels now. I don't know if you'll be around next year. And uh, a little bit later, we almost went broke because our in other independent distributor did go broke and with all of our records. But shortly afterwards, Ruth called up and said she changed her mind. And uh, instantly, like our sales doubled and tripled. And Mordam was the best independent distributor probably anywhere. I Certainly the best I ever knew. And Were they the only way to get into malls? wasn't the only way, but it was... I don't want to sound crass, but it was the other thing about Mordam. It was the one way, sure way to make to know that you were going to get paid for your records. A lot of distributors could get your, your records out, but a lot of them didn't bother with the second half, which was pay you for them. Whereas Mordam was like clockwork; they were never they were never a day late in their payments the whole time I worked with them. And in fact, if there was ever if we were ever had a shortfall of cash, I could even ask her for an advance on the next month's. Uh, pay. Um, she was a very upright and righteous uh, woman and a very smart woman who start, built that company from nothing into uh, a huge enterprise, bigger than Lookout. Uh, I mean, she did, she did for a lot of other labels what she did for us, too. 
were there any sleeves out there with sweet children written on them? Because you had mentioned Green Day initially were called Sweet Children, so you had their record pressed up as Sweet Children. So do Sweet Children sleeves still exist? No, I don't think that uh, they do. If they do, I don't have one, and I can't remember seeing it. Uh, they we, we kind of were... Uh, haphazard and shoestring operation in those days basically made up everything as we went along a lot of times the bands were would give us the art but if they didn't we would have to come up with it ourselves in the case of green day they were you know they were 17 year old kids at the time and uh i don't think they had done anything uh we had already announced the record as sweet children and everything was in motion and then billy came to see me about a month before the release and said, hey, we changed our name to Green Day. And I screamed my head off at him, said, you can't do that. It's impossible. It's a stupid name. Everybody knows Sweet Children, all 200 of your fans, and nobody knows Green Day. What does it even mean? But like I found with a lot of bands, uh, at least them in Operation Ivy, like you could tell them, but you can't, couldn't tell them much. And uh, basically, once they decided that was what was going to happen, that was what was going to happen. So we had to stay up all night. Uh, David quickly designed that Green Day logo, which often still gets used to this day, you see on T-shirts, and when that's that became the cover, we stayed up all night xeroxing. That's how we did all our record covers in those days was xeroxing them on the, and folding them on the floor of the copy shop in downtown Berkeley. So there really is no Sweet Children Seven Inch because that would be the ultimate collectible, wouldn't it? Well, there is a Sweet Children Seven Inch, which was actually recorded two years later uh, by Green Day, but of some of their old songs when they, but no. As far as I know, I, and I've been proven wrong before, I, I, there's these like uh, obsessive 17-year-old record collectors who constantly email me and say, what about this? And I'll, I'll like, I don't, I never heard of it. And they'll say, well, I have a copy of it right here. And I'll like, I never saw that before. <laughs> so I, I'm always, I'm always surprised. Did Green Day play, pay like a million in taxes the first year? No, that was uh, that was me. That was you. Oh, <laughs> thanks to Green Day. Thanks to Green Day. Wait, well, I shouldn't say it was me. It was Lookout Records. I I, I wasn't uh, all of Lookout Records, but I was the one who had to write the checks, and uh, it was more than I think it was one point two million that I had. Uh, it was yeah, you know, obviously more money than I had ever seen or imagined in my life, and suddenly there I was sitting at my desk writing it a check for the uh, Internal Revenue Service for that amount. Um, uh, but that was the in those days, I mean, I had literally been on welfare only a few years earlier, and um, here I was writing million-dollar checks. It, uh, my dad got a kick out of it. He went, he went around telling all of his cronies at the down on the corner uh, about when they would brag about their their son. Well, my son paid a million dollars in tax last year, and uh, which is as what far year as was that? that would have been nineteen ninety. I guess or four 95 yeah it was the first time I I'm aware of my dad ever bragging about me but that's you know you got to do what you got to do uh and you are Larry Livermore who is going to be doing a reading tonight at what's up dog on Hastings I think around 8 30 I think around 8 30 I'm beginning to have my doubts because I've already told half of the stories that I was planning on telling there so um I'm not sure. What do you think? Grad will also be there reading from his book, yeah. Dirty Windshields. But he didn't. He didn't spill all the beans already on your show. Um, what would you recommend? Well, Grant you... is going to be phoning in to the Nardwar show to help promo his gig tomorrow night. The big gig tomorrow night. 
Right. It's a pretty big deal. I last time I saw the smugglers at the Commodore must be a good 20 plus years ago. The smugglers, chicks dig it, the muffs and needles pins. I don't know about this needles pins band. Is, uh, is a new Mint Records signee. And of course, Mint Records is led a, you to Grant Lawrence. Mint so, Records is, uh, no, I think Grant Lawrence read, led me to Mint Records. No, if it wasn't for Mint Records, Cub wouldn't exist. That's and true. of course, but if. Uh, if, if but if, uh, if it weren't for Glenn Lawrence and I didn't come to visit him at the Mint Records office in 1995 or 4 or whatever year it was, I would have never known anything about Mint Records. Uh, right, but Grant had a job at Mint Records. Yes, so he did. So thank you, Mint Records, because Mint Records— We're giving Grant Lawrence a job when nobody else would. And then that attracted you, and Cub as well, and that's where you met Grant on a Cub but tour in California. You, when I first came to the Mint office to, and Grant— was there working and showed me around and told me about the Mint mission. That was when I first got the idea of trying to work with Mint and build a cross-border alliance. And so that had a lot to do with Grant as well. Although I, I over the years, formed a fast friendship with Bill Baker, who was the the big man, one of the two big men at uh, uh, Mint in those days. Who will be there tomorrow night. Again, the smugglers... The Muffs, Chicks, Tigget, and Needles and Pins, newly signed to Mint Records. And we're speaking here live to Larry Livermore from The Lookouts and The Potato Men and also Lookout Records. When did you leave Lookout Records? It was like 1999 or no, when 1997. was it? No, 1997. Wow, a long time ago, 20 years ago. 20 years ago the, in uh, in. Uh, and a little change. I think it was the beginning of April, 20 years ago. And I thought I would ask you about this band right here. What can you tell the people about this band that I have played a couple times on CITR and always gets a reaction? Who is this band? The Yeasty Girls. I, I get a lot of abuse over this band. Uh, I can't believe it because uh, at the time, um, as you know, as a man who's been around for a while, you too will know that at uh, at one time, it was not that easy for for uh, all women or mostly women bands to to get heard or to get taken seriously, and that all has changed over the years. Nowadays, there's many great bands. Um, there were then too, but they didn't get to get heard. The Yeasty Girls were unabashedly feminist and right in your face, um, but they didn't play instruments. They were a cappella rap, and they. I tried like heck to uh, get convince them to add a rhythm track because this was just when indie rap was just starting to take off. And I said, you got a really important social message here. If you played, if you had a beat that you could play in clubs and stuff, like so many people would, would listen to it. And they're, they were like, we don't need a man telling us how to, to run our band. And I had to admit that that was correct. And men had been telling women how to be in bands and how to dress and how to act for in the music business forever. And so I shut up and just let them do it their way. Um, and it's, it did very well. It actually was one of the best-selling Lookout singles ever. But a lot of the people who came along later who really liked the pop-punk sound that we became famous for, they hate that record because it's not pop punk, because it's a little bit dry. It's basically the lyrics are the main thing that matter. And so, especially out in New York, there's this whole second generation of pop punkers who were only children when Lookout was in its heyday, but who love that style of music. And every time we talk about Lookout, they make fun of me and like, oh yeah, and the Yeasty Girl. And I'll go like, the only uh, 
only two bands on Lookout that sold more 7 Inches than the Eastie Girls were Operation Ivy and Green Day, so you don't know everything. What happened to the Yeastie Girls? Were they at the Lookouting? Uh, no, they weren't, um, and I was, I was disappointed, but one, one of them lives out in New York, and she was probably the most vocal and most, I don't know I, how, we, how you would say, I mean, she was the most militant, and she was the one that basically told me to forget about it when I, uh, I said, put, put a rhythm track on it. Ironically, uh, the remaining members after Jane, who was the, one of the founding members, after she left, the remaining members did do a, a, a rhythm track with a, a band called Consolidated, and it did very, very well. They took one of those songs and remixed it with a, with a, with a music beat, with, a, with beats and music. Consolidated helped them out? Well, they... I, or she was in Consolidated. No, they, uh, the Consolidated took a Yeasty Girls track off of this record and remixed it with music, and it was probably sold a couple hundred thousand, which was, I think, this single, which was vinyl only on 7-inch, might have done 15 or 20,000 at the most, which was a lot for a 7-inch for single in those days. And here we go, the Yeasty Girls, the entire B-side. Are we going to play a lot of the B-side of the Yeasty Girls? Uh, uh, you might not. There's a, a little, uh, that uh, uh, woman, Jane, that I just mentioned, uh, who basically came up with the concept of the Yeasty Girls. She went briefly to college with a fellow called Mike from the Beastie Boys, and they they basically kind of jointly came up with the concept. It's just his band had a little bit more success. but uh, So were the Yeasty Girls pre-Beastie Boys? No, uh, I think that the Beastie Boys were already in full effect, but she she and he both, they both went to Vassar College in uh, upstate New York, and they both dropped out after a semester or two. But back when they were buddies at Vassar College, they kind of had this idea. And uh, I think he pursued his a lot sooner than she did hers and had a lot more success with it. So here we go, the Yeasty Girls, and tune out if you're easily. Will people be offended by this? I Should think, people I tune think, out? Uh, there, I, if, if I recall, there's a, a quite a bit of swearing on this record. So here we go, the Yeasty Girls with special guest DJ Larry Livermore. Well, I was hanging out at Gilman Street the other day. I met a zine editor. He's a major babe. But before I let my sloppy juices burst, there's something that I gotta say to him first. I say I wanna fuck you now, but first we better talk. About a little piece of rubber that fits on your car. The only thing about fucking that makes me afraid is I don't wanna get pregnant. I don't, I don't wanna, wanna get AIDS. AIDS. And those two reasons are enough for me. So I'm telling you to take responsibility. You say you used them once before and didn't like the way they felt. But, but put a lid on it, boy, right now or else. A lot of you guys have a problem right now. You just want to get laid and you don't know how well if you want to change your luck and change it fast put a rubber on your dick without, without being asked unless you want to sit at home masturbating wear rubber every time without complaining it's your damn sperm juice that causes all the trouble put, put a, a lid, lid on it boy on the double there's a whole lot of ways to have sexual fun the old in out in out is not the only one you can kiss me you can suck me you can finger me too but you better wear rubber if you want to screw you know i'd want to fuck you babe a whole lot more if getting you to wear rubber wasn't such a chore we're tired of being the ones that have to say put a lid on it boy or go away you better learn to use them right make no mistakes because they're both up shit creek without a paddle if it breaks don't expect your mom and dad to show you how yeah it's time to start practicing Right now, I'm getting all excited and you're ready to erupt. So whip it out, baby, and cover it up. Well, it's the end of this rap and there's nothing else to do. So put a lid on it, boy, and let's screw.
We are the Coochie Crew, and we are coming at you. We're gonna get wet and slimy and ooze all over. Our Johnnies, we got a tale to relate. Women ought to masturbate. Get loose. Flow juice. Let your fingers do the walking and your clit will be rocking. Fuck yourself. Mm. Fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. Fuck yourself. Mm. Fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. You better get down and dirty by the time you hit 30. You ought to be an old hand at, at stimulating your glands. Get loose. Love juice. Let your fingers do the walking and your clit'll be rocking. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Some folks say you'll go blind. Oh, you will lose your mind. But all that will happen is, is a monster, monster orgasm. Get loose. Flow juice. Let your fingers do the walking and your clit'll be rocking. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. You gotta know what to do. Cause nobody's gonna tell you how to manipulate that clit. Unless you're already doing it. Get loose. Flow juice. Let your fingers do the walking and your clit'll be rocking. Fuck yourself, huh? Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, huh? Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Now take a look around and see what can be found. A bicycle seat can be pretty neat. An electric toothbrush will give you a rush. A handy cucumber is a fine number. A dozen drumsticks will make you tick. Stick a carrot up your butt if you're in a rut. Or buy a dildo and go, go, go. And don't forget, we told you so. Get loose. Float juice. Let your fingers do the walking and your clit will be rocking. Fuck yourself, uh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Just remember that it's up to you. Don't need another person to screw. The best sex can be found at home. All by yourself, sitting alone. Get loose, flow juice. Let your fingers do the walking and your clit will be rocking. Fuck yourself, uh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. Fuck yourself, uh. Fuck yourself, uh-huh. You got ten fingers? Use them, baby. Coming from the grave, big and tall and wet and 
and you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show with special guest DJ Larry Livermore. And what did we hear there, Larry? Exactly. Good question. Uh, actually, it just popped into my head because that song contained certain the words green and slimy, which uh, I heard on the Eastie Girls record. And I don't think there's any connection, but this was uh, Big Green Monsters by the Lookouts. And it was one of the first songs where the other guys in the band pretty much took over. I All I did was play guitar on there. And uh, that's trading off vocals between Trey Cool and Kane Kong. And it's a song about big green monsters. And uh, I don't think they copied the lyrics from... Uh, the Eastie Girls, although you never know, um, the Eastie Girls song had come out first. So, And before that, we heard the Yeasty Girls, two tracks. Yes, I I didn't realize how long they were. I, you know, people, people who are not in the record business might not know this, but there's limits to how much music you can fit on a seven-inch record. But when there's no instruments, the instruments are what takes up all the room. So if it's vocal, just plain vocals, you could probably have a lot more in Gosh, there is a lot of it on here, but how much did that sell? How much did lot, that seven-inch sell? A show? lot. Like <laughs> fifteen thousand. I I would like that to many. 50, I think I, the number sixteen thousand. There might have been twenty thousand. Um, you know, a lot. They I, they kind of benefited from the big explosion that followed after Green Day got big, because almost everything on Lookout sold more. Plus. They got a lot of attention from outside the normal lookout world because of their feminist uh, approach. And, you know, it's a I I think it laid the groundwork for a lot of uh, a lot of other bands like who would come along a few years later, like in the riot girl scene. But I still wish they would have done some music with it. I, I think they could be uh it could be classics but it's not what they wanted that's that's how they wanted to do it this was literally a band that started on the sidewalk out in front of gilman street like quite a few other great bands but just people sitting around hey you know what we ought to do we ought to have a acapella all-female rap band okay and like within a week or two they were performing on the stage at gilman that's that's how things often worked in those days and we have a caller caller are you there hello caller Let's check. Do we have a low caller? Hello, caller. If that was a caller, please phone back. I was going to mention to you, Larry, the Yeasty Girls, did they bring the house down every time they played? They must have, right? You know, to be perfectly fair and honest, I'm not sure they did. They they certainly had some shows where it was completely amazingly insane and out of control. But I think there might have been other shows because, you know, one of the cool things about Gilman was that they would just throw all kinds all kinds of bands together. Oh, we have a caller. Hello, caller. Are you there? I don't recognize this guy's voice. I love feedback. Yes, you can tune in to The Nardwar Show on the internet at www.ca. You can phone in live at 604-822-2487. Thank you, caller, and do 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 
That was amazing. I love the feedback. Yes, you can tune in. And we are speaking. Who are you? You are Larry Livermore in town today and tomorrow for the big smugglers gig. Well, I just happened to be in town and I saw they were playing, so I thought I'd come by. The reunion gig of the smugglers featuring the muffs, chicks dig it, and needles and pins, and Grant's book. Grant's book as well. Grant's That's book. That's pretty exciting, but let's let's be fair. It's not the reunion gig of the smugglers. It's the Canadian. Because there was reunion. There was a the reunion. Lookout Inn. There I was alluded a to reunion it. at Gilman Street in January, which was pretty amazing. Um, I, I'd say the Smugglers and, and Brent's TV were by far the highlights. And it was ironic because both bands haven't played in many, many years. And yet they got up on stage and it was like somehow over the years they had gotten better, even th- despite not having played, not having, in some cases not even having even seen each other. Somehow this alchemy had taken place where they were just gotten so much better. Um uh, I was like, I was in tears. I really was. Now, you left Lookout Records in 97, 1997. What is the deal behind this book right there? Rock Stars, Dumb Shits by Michael Lugas. Huh. I don't know. I have never. The Phantom Surfers, Ma- I, I Michael. Who, I know who they are, but I have never seen Rock this. Stardom for Dumb it would, Shits. It wouldn't be a Nardwar interview if you didn't pull out something that nobody had ever seen in their life but uh, he is an author too and so is grant and so I, I are you i believe michael uh lucas has written a lot of books but i have never read one i have never seen one and as a matter of fact i don't think i've ever even met the gentleman i i, I think i've seen the phantom servers perform a few times but i don't remember ever even having met him he was uh my successor chris applegren worked with him uh quite in, extensively on this phantom uh Surface, and I think on a couple of other bands that he was related to, but I know I have never seen this. Uh, it mentions this Lookout Records I wouldn't in be their bed. If it did, it reminds me of uh, Ian from uh, the Makeup. Uh, he's written a book about how to be a rock star too. I, I can't remember the exact title of it. It was more written in a, the rules of how to achieve success in the rock and roll business. What do you think about other book writers of the scene? Like Brian Edge wrote a book about Gilman. He also wrote a book about the fine young cannibals. I did not know that about the second one. I had no idea anybody wrote a book about the fine young cannibals. The uh, Gilman book, Brian Edge was the main force behind it, but I wouldn't say he actually wrote it. It was a more like a compilation. He gathered a whole lot of contributions from... I. I think he may have printed something from my Maxim Rock and Roll column or Lookout Magazine or something. A lot of people contributed in a lot of different ways, but Brian Edge was the one who persistently kept at it and made it come together. The only, the only thing wrong with the Gilman book is that it, uh, the binding falls apart if you're not careful. Um, but it's an invaluable resource. Uh, it's, it's huge. What about Op Ivy? You saw them in a barn? No, you're confusing them with Green Day, and it wasn't a barn. It was a shed or a shack or a cabin. What is the difference? <laughs> uh, well, Th- that is something very is near us- and dear a, to you, isn't it? A barn it? is something usual that functions usually with animals or hay or stuff like that. Um, and actually, I think there's a might be a picture in my book or someplace on the Internet of Op Ivy actually did play in a, uh, a barn uh, near San Francisco, but it was after they were already established. First time I saw Operation Ivy was 
at Gilman. The first time I saw Green Day, or Sweet Children, as they were called then, was in this little mountain cabin uh, up in the wilderness where there was supposed to be a teenage house party that Trey Cool had committed our band to playing, and Sweet Children volunteered to play too, and but nobody showed up because it was 20 miles up the, into the mountains and it was a miserable, cold, snowy night. Caller, are you there? Hello, Tim, Tim, Tim Johannes. Hello? Tim Johannes? Who invented Danny Bonaducci and what happened to the Mr. T experience after their debut album, Tim Johannes? Thank you, caller, and do do loo do. Wow, another does mystery caller. Does that happen to all your callers? Not enough, not enough. But the caller did mention, uh, he inter- the caller interrupted your Op Ivy story for a Tim Yohannan story. Yeah, it wasn't much of a story that I could follow, but uh, Tim Yohannan is a story in himself. Uh, we do have another caller. Hello, are you there, caller? Yeah, I'm just wondering, who canceled today? Ba-boom! Who are you? Uh, This is Grant Lawrence calling, your old pal. And we are also joined, Grant Lawrence, by Larry... Livermore? Larry Livermore. That's what they told me to say. Another old pal. Another old pal. Now, Grant, could you please explain what is going on tonight and tomorrow, and where will be Larry? Where will he be available? Well, that's the question uh, the smugglers ask, is, Larry, where are you? And we never really know until the last minute... And uh, Larry Livermore is in Vancouver tonight, and we're, we're going to be doing kind of a, a, a mini maxi uh, weekend. We're going to go from a tiny little place, What's Up Hot Dog, tonight uh, in Hastings Sunrise to uh, the Commodore Ballroom tomorrow night. And uh, Larry's going to be reading from his book, How to Ruin a Record Label, or Run a Record Label, depending on how you want to read the title, uh, tonight at around 8.30 p.m., Space is extremely limited. Does that and, will I be um, able to fit in? You'll be able to fit in. You and I will be crowded in by the uh, pinball machine. And I have another question, uh, Grant. Do I have to read from my book, or can I just tell stories about it? Well, you can tell stories from it. That's fine. I'm going to read the from my book. I'm going to read uh, the passage about you. Oh boy, which, which contains one of my all-time favorite. Uh, rock and roll stories. Now, Grant, is, is it about the cow suit? Uh, no, it's about your nose ah. B- being broken twice. But I would dispute <laughs> you and Larry meeting over the smugglers. It was actually through Cub, wasn't it, Grant? Yes, but I, uh, yes, Cub but does, Cub does not get credit. They don't. Uh, they no, are not I, not enough. No. They were an important band. No, I still get credit um, because. Uh, here's the reason why. Uh, Cub were doing a West Coast tour with DOA, and it was a lot of bar shows, and there was a lot of nights off, and it was kind of one of those tours where it's like, oh, there's shows on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Well, what about the rest of the week? As Mike Watt once said, if you're not playing, you're paying. So I said, well, we got to find wait, another Wait, wait, wait. Cub and DOA? Yeah, they were playing like What a combination. Play- Cub also, Cub also, Grant played with Rancid too, right? Yeah, that's right in in Reno, Nevada. That's right. Um, now, so I thought, okay, like they're playing like the Grange Hall in Stockton, California, 
and the audience was always pretty much 100% men. So I thought, okay, there's got we got to get we got to open this up more to the kind of the indie pop punk scene. And so I had made contact with the Narrative Wells. We played with them at the Purple Onion about a year earlier. And so I said, okay, look, we, we got to play with this Narrative Wells band. Cub knew them. And so we set up a string of shows with the Narrative Wells and the Softies on the off nights of the DOA tour. And they were way better shows. Uh, Cub played at Gilman and Cub played at uh, the um, Manila Community Hall. And that is where Dave Carswell and I, Dave, who was drumming for Cub on that tour, that is where we met this unassuming man leaning up against the wall of the Manila Community Hall named Larry Livermore. Isn't that just what I said about Grant Lawrence? Unassuming, quiet. uh, But you said, Larry, you met Grant wearing boots. Grant was wearing boots. I want to say he was wearing those rubber boots. Yeah, I I was. Ah! No, wait a second. You were, what was your position on the Cub Tour, Grant Lawrence, playing tomorrow night with the Muffs, Chicks, Dig It, and Needles and Pins? What was your position on that tour, and why would you be wearing the boots, the Smuggler's boots? It was January of 1994, so it was really wet. Yeah, it rains a lot in that part of the California. Yeah, wet and cold in Northern California, so I had my boots on. And we, um, you know, I was the tour manager and, and I was basically trying to show Cub, you know, how it's done. Like they were doing things like draping their wet towels over their boxes of vinyl. And, you know, it's all this kind of novice behavior. Was that to keep the vinyl damp and fresh? I don't know. what I, I, I think they didn't realize that the moisture could seep through the um, cardboard and warp the covers. But... Uh, Anyway, I yelled at them about that for about 45 minutes, and they never did it again. And uh, But we would – I remember Chris Imlay from the Narrative Wells, then High Five. And Brent Stevie. Yeah, and Brent Stevie. He took us on this sort of tour uh, from uh, Humboldt County on down, and one of the stops was the road sign for Spy Rock Road – uh, and we got out and, and took a picture, and that picture ended up in uh, Larry's first book. But Cub did not end up in your book for that description. Uh, no, Cub ended up in my book for another reason. I mean, I, I tease Cub a lot, and I, I like to say that, oh, we taught them everything they know. But the reality is Cub were uh, a very, very savvy, smart uh, great band, and they uh, they taught us a lot. They they probably it was probably equal lessons back and forth. I mean, they would clean our clock on merchandise every night, and it drove us crazy. But you are here today, Grant, through the graciousness of Mint Records. Like Mint Records <laughs> brought together you and Larry Livermore, didn't they? Didn't they? No, Thank you, no, Mint. Uh, no, no, no. Yes, they didn't. yes. I brought. Mint and Lookout together. No, but if it wasn't for Mint, they would have released the Cub record, and you would have gone on tour. Well, that that that's possible, yeah. So yeah, thank I mean, you, Mint Records, and you're returning the favor. Mint, Mint to- Records is a pretty great label. I'm, they've made Vancouver proud for many years now. Yeah, and you're returning and- the favor tomorrow night, right? Yeah. Eight o'clock. Like eight o'clock. Needles and pins at the Commodore, right? Yeah, it's an, it's an early show for the babysitter factor. 
Uh, I, I just I just have to interject here, Nardware. Have the Muffs called in yet? Uh, no, they haven't. But could you please remind them to phone in if possible? Because they are talking about tomorrow's gig. What is happening tomorrow? One more time. What is happening tonight and tomorrow? Uh, it's a big celebration of uh, my new book, Dirty Windshields, which features you, Nardwar, and Larry Livermore, and the Muffs, and Chicks Diggit, and Cub, and not quite Needles Pins, because they're the band from this century. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, it's just a big celebration, a rock and roll party. Um, there's a few tickets left at the record stores, and I was just told... Um, that they they were they're going to release some tickets at the door tomorrow as well. So there'll be tickets for people that walk up because apparently, even when it's sold out, the Commodore is never really sold out. On the back of your book, you have written. And we're speaking here to Grant Lawrence, who cancelled on the back of your book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that those those were maps. I think that's a European map and. Uh, who canceled is one of our favorite punchlines because like, you know, we'd get offered a gig, like say we'd get offered a new year's Eve gig, but it would be like December 15th when we get the offer. So we'd be able to figure out pretty quickly, like, okay, who canceled? And then if you ask that question, who canceled, sometimes it's kind of like peeling an onion. It's like, well, about eight, bands canceled until you finally agreed to play <laughs> uh, boom but you are sacrificing yourself grant Eleven thirty tomorrow night you yourself are playing cleanup yeah we're playing cleanup it's it's the it's a classic irony no it's you like, you grant lawrence you mean, are doing oh, cleanup he's cleaning up the the ballroom you're, you're, you're no you're doing cleanup for the smugglers that's what we used no, to do at gilman we had to clean up the, the the hall after the after all the bands were finished playing is that what grant, you're suggesting grant, grant's going to clean no, up no what what he's referring to is cleanup is the slot that looks like the headlining position but is actually really kind of the slot where everyone kind of leaves oh you're doing a solo uh, show after the smugglers no no that will be good with you you with an acoustic guitar and some folks on I, I have seen you grant play some john denver oh god i i will pay good money to see that yeah well Take it me is home an country outrage. roads it, it is i do that one it is an outrage that the smugglers are, are headlining over the muffs that is true but you yourself are doing a signing after the smugglers. You are yeah, playing right. cleanup. I'm going over to the to the merchandise table, which, quite frankly, Nardwar, you know, all bands do now. We didn't used to do it, but now all bands drop their guitars and they race to the merchandise table and they'll sign everything the artist wants. Like they will shove fans out of the way to get to the merchandise table. It's that important in 2017. Uh, in 1997, we'd be like, oh, whatever, Scott T will take care of it. And we just partied, you know, backstage. Didn't meet anybody. And now it's all about getting to the merch table. Sign, 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 sign. Take advantage of the impulse buy. Meet the fans. You are Grant Lawrence, author of Dirty Windshields. I called the book Dirty Fingernails by mistake. What have people <laughs> called the book by mistake? Okay, well, you know Tim who does the, the show Rocket from Russia? 
Yes, Tim. Tim. Uh, Russian okay. Tim. He's got a wonderful Russian accent, and it reminds me of Pavel Bure. And he, with his Russian lilt, it sounds like he was saying a girly windshields, which is really nice. On page 55 of your book, Grant Lawrence, Dirty Windshields, and of course yeah. the smugglers are doing a reunion show tomorrow night at the Commodore, you say, quote, the de facto accommodation. A lot of bands stayed at your parents' house. Did Nirvana really stay at your house? I know a lot of bands did, but did Kurt Cobain really stay at your house? And did years later, your sister said, oh, I heard of this new band called Nirvana. And you were like, oh, they stayed at my house. Yeah, that's all correct. Larry, did you ever stay at our house? Uh, no, I'm feeling a bit slighted uh, right now. But you, you must have stayed at our West End apartment. I visited it, but no, I was not invited to stay. And Larry is quite taken back by his association with the Sylvia Hotel. I thought Larry Livermore loved the Sylvia Hotel. No, the English Bay Hotel. Oh, I was wrong. I, did, I didn't want to. I didn't know if we were supposed to give them a plug on the air, but uh, it is cheap. What's yeah, her? But okay, so that Nirv- that Nirvana story, uh, you're it's sort of. It's sort of true and not true what you just said, because Kurt Cobain and Courtney did not end up sleeping at my parents' house. They ended up going to the travel lodge right over the border in North Vancouver. I don't know what the problem was. They were fighting and they, they wanted some privacy or something. So I directed them to that travel lodge. And then the rest of the band stayed uh, Chris Novoselic, Dave Grohl, and the sound man all stayed. And Dave Grohl uh, slept in my sister's bed because she was staying at a friend's house or something, and so her bed was empty. And then, like, four or five years later, around the dinner table, my sister, like, by then had discovered Nirvana and by then had discovered, you know, the Foo Fighters. And I said, well, you know that guy, Dave Grohl, drummer and, you know, lead singer of the Foo Fighters, he slept in your bed, and uh, my sister has still not gotten over the shock, and she still has the bed. <laughs> we are speaking here to Grant Lawrence, author of Dirty Windshields, and as well, Larry Livermore, author of what, Grant? Uh, author of uh, Spy Rock Road, A Life uh, in the Bush. See, see, I can tell this is lived in uh, uh, Spy Rock Memories. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and how, and to, how to how to ruin a record label, or how to um, run a record label? I was yes. I was curious. No, wait, Nardwar, Nardwar, do you I was. The muffs are waiting for you to call them. Uh, I'm waiting actually for them to call me. But hang, I was. Hang on, I, I just got a message from them. Hang on, you you keep talking to Larry. Just a sec. Larry, what can you say about Grant Lawrence and his book? Have you read it? Uh, I have not read the book. I've seen just a couple of very small excerpts from it, and. Just when he was doing the final edit, he contacted me with a whole bunch of questions about things that he had written about me or about Lookout and asked if they were correct. And um, I explained to him that most of them were not. <laughs> they were good stories. But What did Grant get wrong? Um, Briefly. It's too much. Grant's good at making stories. Uh, no, but before anybody gets the wrong impression, he... He quickly took on board any corrections that, that I offered, and so I assume that the finished version has all the right information. Uh-oh, what does that mean? 
Uh, it went do 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 do. I'm not exactly. We could be on hold. We could be on hold with Grant Lawrence. And again, where's... Hello? Oh, Grant, are you still there? Grant. Yeah, I just told Ronnie from the Muffs to call you. Oh, is he in town? Yeah, they made it. Oh, great. Um, He could be getting busy signal because you are on the line. But just quickly, Grant... Well, should I hang up? Uh, possibly in a second for him to call Wait in. But I was going to say to you, was there a lot of pressure writing this book? Like, for instance, you've done a couple books and Larry has done a couple books for writers. Is there a lot of pressure? Is there a lot of expectations? Essentially, I'm referring to the no effects book where the first line is, <laughs> yeah. I pissed on her or she pissed on me the no, first no, no, line no, no, no. so no, you no. were up against that that scared you right no the first line of the no effects book is the first time i drank piss i was on a fire escape in la and that scared you and uh, and you grant the first time you uh drank no <laughs> Well, that would be probably uh, Ameri- the first time I tasted American beer. Ah, good one. No, I, I, I think I think uh, what Nardwar is getting at is it's kind of like I don't think that's the kind of book that either Grant or I would feel like any kind of competition with because it's a different story and a very entertaining story that the NoFX book tells. But I don't think either my story or Grant's story has – that much in common with it, other than guitars. Yeah, the no effect story is the punk version of The Dirt, um, where all four members tell their story and, uh, and, and, and is written by an outside writer. And oh, I so, didn't know that. I thought they wrote it. No, they didn't write it. They, uh, a really great guy, a documentary filmmaker and writer. Uh, the guy, he followed no effects for like five years, filming them for the TV show that they did. And um, he wrote the book and basically just interviewed all four members over and over and over and over and over and over and then transcribed it, just like the uh, Rolling Stone writer did for The Dirt. And uh, I didn't do any of that. Yeah, nor did, nor did I. But as I, 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 it occurred to me, like I say in, in my book, that uh, people often ask if there was any competition between Lookout and Fat Records because they assume we were from the Bay Area and played punk rock. But... There wasn't really because although it might seem similar, their their world, their scene, their music, which we called like baggy shorts music, it's it's just enough different that I didn't. You although know, you both had a comp with Floyd in a title. Oh yeah, but uh, there was a guy called Floyd who actually went to work at uh, at Fat. That's what I assume that was about. Uh, Floyd, the lookout Floyd, was a, a mythical character that David Hayes invented. Uh, but I know I know that the Fat Records bands are extremely popular. But I always personally preferred Lookout bands, and I always thought that that the Fat Records bands' names were so terrible. Like I Chicks mean, Dig It. You're gonna oh, you're gonna you're gonna call that, your, that name is why they didn't get on Lookout. I hate to say it, but well, there you go. You're gonna call <laughs> your band no use for a name. We used Screw to we used to say you. no use for a brain at uh, Gilman. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm sorry, it's really terrible of me for to say, but uh, and they they tried to get on lookout for the whole first year, but they couldn't understand why. Uh, but it wasn't the name; it was. But you are bringing everybody together, Grant, tomorrow night at the Commodore. Yeah. All, uh, all mid, the old, mid, all the old schisms uh, and differences are set aside. Uh, all the labels, Mint Records, all the scenes unite together. Mint Records, chicks dig it. Who are on fat? 
But yeah. they're a great they're a great band. That's that's the tragedy of it. I would have had them on lookout for a minute in a minute, like years and years ago, long before they went to Fat Pansy Division. Brought their tape to me and said, "We love we love this band. We met them in Canada." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't know if the name does it." And I didn't really listen to it properly until years later. And by that time, they'd gone to Fat. And the Muffs. Yeah, well, uh, and uh, uh, Mint wouldn't sign Chicken Ticket because of there was an X in their name. And Bill was like, I don't like that. It looks too metal. <laughs> okay, I thought I was nuts. But the <laughs> no, also, no. Uh, I think also Chicks Diggit had that song, HIV is Killing Me, and Mila and myself or something. They had another song that I don't think me was okay. a big fan of. K- KJ is not going to want us bringing this kind of stuff up. And you can check KJ of Chicks Diggit out tomorrow night. Again, what times are the bands, Grant? Pardon me? What time are the bands? We have... Uh, okay, Bill Baker just texted me saying that that X story is complete nonsense, but I think I might challenge his memory on that. I one. don't know. Sounds like a good story. But see, yeah. I was just telling Nardwar how some of your stories are really outstanding stories, but they might be a little bit factually challenged. And that... uh, No, that's so... Actually, you know, Dirty Windshields, I ran it by people over I, I was just over. telling him while you were off the air I that how you checked all of the, the lookout in Livermore sections with me. And, yeah, there was a, a few deviations, but that as far as I yeah. knew, you had corrected them. And we, and we fixed them, just like those kids in San Rafael did to your nose. <laughs> a baboom tomorrow night the smugglers at 7 30 you are doing yeah. a reading at the commodore right grant yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna read a, a portion of the dirty windshields probably the part about when we used to sneak into the commodore uh, some good stories there as you may recall nardwar uh for the cramps and for other gigs or, uh, like that and then um and then so 7 30 i'm reading 8 p.m needles pins something like 8:45, chicks dig it. 9:30, the muffs, and 10:30, the smugglers, and then uh, and that's it. So it's an early, early show. Like someone said to me, "Oh yeah, I'll probably show up around 10." I'm like, "This is not the town pump in 1987. Like you got to show up early because 90% of the people in the room have a 14-year-old babysitter at home looking after their kids, and they have to get home to relieve the babysitter by midnight." Your book is also different than the No Effects book in that you have tons of pictures. Nix's pictures prove the point. Prove the point, right? Yeah, see, that's the thing I really appreciated. Uh, Stuart Dearden in the Vancouver Sun, he said, this is a rare thing. It's an evidence-based memoir. So I really appreciate that because, um, you know, my parents taught me to keep everything. You were a big, uh, a big proponent for uh, keeping everything as well. So I kept literally everything. So all I was really had to do was go back to the diaries and go back to the posters and I could check dates and I could check stories and the photos tell lots of stories and confirm who was there. And How many there. Nick Thomas photos, your guitarist, are there in there? Because there are tons. Probably, I don't know, a hundred at least. Which is amazing because like, I think Joey Shithead had a memorabilia book just of pictures. It is like a picture book, pretty much. Yeah, and, and I think we kick that book's ass in the pictures. And there's a story. Ba-boom. And lastly, Grant, in honor of Cub, at the Cub House, which is not in the book, you took a glass of Jason Priestley's piss? <laughs> 
tying yeah, into that, that NoFX book, apparently. That, what was that, 819 West 19th or something like that? Yeah, it should have. That, that could have been in the NoFX book, Larry. Yeah, I remember Jason Priestley, star of uh, 90210, at the height of his fame, the height of his fame, uh, came to a smuggler's party uh, when Nick uh, was living in this house, of this, this cub house where cub formed in the basement. And uh, I remember uh, he came, he showed, Jason Priestley showed up, and he's, they're, you know, we're partying with him, and it's a thrill and all this stuff. And uh, then there was a skirmish outside. A, a girl was getting out of the taxi cab, and she started having a, sorry, there's a, there's a guy on a dirt bike uh, revving up beside me here. But um, he started, uh, she started having a shoving match with the cab driver, and Jason Priestley dashed down from the porch and broke up the skirmish and told the cab driver to get out of there. And then he went inside and he urinated into the toilet. And I, I followed him and grabbed a cup, a clear glass coffee cup, scooped out his pee and put it on Lisa Mar's mantle. And today, that's what connects you with Larry Livermore. Cub! <laughs> Piss! <laughs> okay. And check you out, Grant, tonight at where? Where can we check Larry and you out? At What's Up Dog? At What's Up Hot Dog in Hastings Sunrise. And uh, so I think that'll be Larry's first foray into the furthest eastern neighborhood in Vancouver. Uh, and it's, a, again, space is extremely... Not exactly true. I, I, saw, I, I watched from the Mint office while some uh, junkies broke into the High Fives van and ran off with their guitars. That that is nowhere near. Oh, you mean I got to go farther into the much, hinterland? Much, much further. Well, actually, Larry has been there with the Potato Man at the Hastings oh, yeah. Rec Center. No, you're you're totally right. You're totally right. It, in fact, that poster is on the wall of What's Up Hot Dog when the Potato Man first played Vancouver, and uh, when and and when Larry first saw the Smugglers, and that and the Evaporators. Uh, and the Evaporators. That was a great gig. The Queers, the Potato Men, the Smugglers, and the Evaporators. I think that was 1994-ish. And yeah. you are forgetting and one band, the Two Ton Bowlers, featuring... They didn't play that gig. Oh, right. Okay, that was a cross-town gig. Okay, excuse me. <laughs> you were almost but, making but, yeah, me remember it. <laughs> the, the, two, the Two Ton Bowlers from Penticton featuring Spencer Krug, now of Wolf Parade. Broken by Bryce Dunn, a former drummer of The Smugglers. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Grant. And if you could remind Rand, uh, sorry, if you could remind Ronnie of the Muffs to phone in, that will be great. We're going to um, cut to a brand new Muffs recording. Well, pretty new. A weird boy next door. What can I yeah. say about the newer Muffs that are going to be performing tomorrow night? You want me to comment on this? Yeah. The weird boy <laughs> next door. Oh, yeah. Well, this is actually a really cool video of this weird kind of um, ooter-type man. That's a Simpsons reference. And uh, he's kind of dancing around. It's a great song from the Muffs' latest record. They're on Burger Records now, which seems to be kind of like the new It label of California. And when I say new, it's been around a while, but you know what I mean. Like, it's kind of... It's kind of melded. It's kind of picked up the pieces 
you know, it's melded the garage scene and the punk scene and the pop scene all into one. I find their Instagram account extremely obnoxious, but other than that, they've got some pretty good bands uh, on their label. So um, that's what I'll say about this song. Cool video, great song, and uh, and one of the best Muffs records in a long time. Well, thanks so much for phoning in, Grant. Anything you'd like to add to the people out there at all? Just Nardwar, thanks for uh, for 35 years of support, and congratulations on 30 years of the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. Well, thank you very much, Grant. Dirty windshields tomorrow night, and we will reward listeners with free tickets in a while. In a while. Yeah. Now, wait, how many are you giving away? Two pairs. We have two okay, pairs of right, tickets right. to give away. Right. And do to loot do. Do do. A little weirdo way. This is a nice neighborhood right here. 
again, you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And we have a caller right now. Hello, caller. Are you there? Hi, Nardwar. Hello. Hello. Who are you? Who are you? I'm I'm Kim Shattuck, and I'm in a band called The Muffs and another band called The Pandoras. And what did we? That's me. And what did we just hear right now? We heard about it. Yeah. What song did we hear? We just heard, and I just heard, a little bit of Weird Boy Next Door off our last album. It's called whoop de doo Who is the weird boy next door in a vid? Because there is a vid for that song. <laughs> the, the weird boy next door was a person who lived next door to me, for real. And he was literally hitting, hitting the garage door with a baseball bat. And it scared the shit out of me. You are playing tomorrow night as part of the Smugglers reunion show at the Commodore. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I love the Smugglers and I love Chick Stiggett and I'm into uh, Vancouver. Commodore is a huge place, huge, like, historic, historic. What do you remember about the Commodore? Have you played there before? Well, I th- I think that I have played there, but the guys are telling me that I haven't played there. So, I don't know. I, ma- I made it up in my head. Now, I made it up. Kim, you mentioned the guys. Who are the other people in The Muffs? The Muffs consist of Ronnie Barnett on bass, and he's been around the block a few times. And uh, he's a founding member of The Muffs. And then there's Roy McDonald, and he's of the McDonald's of Red Cross, and he um, he drums his brains out, and he's been in the band for, he's a new guy, but he's been in the band for 23 years. And you are Kim Shattuck, a.k.a. Yes, AKA Amy Winehouse? What? <laughs> Did you see my Halloween picture of me being Amy Winehouse? Kim and Amy Winehouse, what can you say about that? I love Amy Winehouse, and it's too bad she's dead. Bummer. But um, she is really good. She made a really good album. Did people recognize the Amy Winehouse? Did you go trick-or-treating with that outfit? I didn't go trick-or-treating because every time I go trick-or-treating as an adult, people get really mad at me. They won't give me candy, so and they, they slam the door in my face. So I don't, I don't do that anymore. But I went to a party, and they all thought it was amazing because I drew tattoos on my arms and um, I found out I was ambidextrous that day. Kim Shattuck of the mumps of the of actually I call I said of the mumps. What have you been mispronounced? I mentioned to Grant I called his book Dirty Fingernails instead of Dirty <laughs> Windshields. I called you for a second Kim of the mumps. What has your <laughs> band been mispronounced as? Like the muffs? Is that all? Is that easy to pronounce? What, have you? One time we, we one time we got to a show early on, way early in our career, and our on the marquee, it said "moof," like M-U with umlaut F-F. So do, that's about the worst uh, way I've seen it spelled. Kim, do you remember the Smuggler's debut 7-inch when you appeared on the B-side? No, I don't remember <laughs> What song was on the B-side? It was on Nardwar Records, and I asked you, who is Prince Charming? Yes, 
You are Prince Charming Nardwar. And you said a couple other things which would be censored on USA Radio. But we began <laughs> the Nardwar to Human Serviettes show with that song, Seattle Bound. So you were part of the smugglers from the beginning. Oh, my God. I had no idea. That's amazing. What do you remember about me and Grant from the Smugglers meeting you at 86th Street in 1989 when you were playing guitar with the Pandoras? I was playing bass in the Pandoras, actually. But, um, yeah, I remember you guys. And I remember um, I remember flirting with you. I It's, it's in all of... Uh, eternity going to be shown on YouTube, but so it's kind of embarrassing. But um, it was, yeah, I saw you. Um, I remember you were really young, super young. Now, did to put Pandora's that I saw at 86th Street in '89? Did they resemble the Pandora's that played at Burgerama a couple of years ago? No, they didn't. Well, hardly resembled it at all. <laughs> No, no, burger. The burger rama or burger boogaloo, whatever it was, we played was uh, me singing instead of Paula. And um, Melanie is is on keyboard still, and uh, Karen's on bass now. My old part, and Hillary's on drums. What about the girl so from the Pebbles? Because I remember the band the Pebbles or Pebble. Oh, the was, Rebel Pebbles. That was huge in Canada. Who was they a con- Yeah, they were huge. Who I saw I saw a poster. Um, we were recording in Karen's studio, and um, I guess their their big hit was called "Dream Lover." Which member of the Pandora was in the Pebbles? Karen, Karen, um, Karen Blankfeld. Do you remember this encounter I had with you, Kim of the Muffs? And we will. I found my thrill. No, I see Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. My mama said. What I just was. I was listening to that earlier today. Yeah, I've been listening to the Shirelles. Oh, the Shirelles, great. Oh my God. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. My mama said. I and then she said, what are you doing? Well, thank you, Kim and the Muffs. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for the thank station you. ID. Sorry for grabbing you through that. We're going to Disneyland on Sunday. Oh, great. Well, we got your number, so we'll give you a call. Are you going to bring your tape recorder? Are you going to tape record? I'm going like to bring my video camera. Video! My video camera. Video! Anything else to say? Anything else to say, Ronnie? Dude, 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 dude. That was amazing, Kim. I went, the evaporators went with you and Ronnie to Disneyland. Oh, my God, that was Disneyland. That's right. We went to Disneyland. I forgot. It was with Rainbowhead Sherry and who else? Uh, Sluts for Hire. The band Sluts for Hire. And Carlin. And and Fred from the band Twinkle. Do you remember Twinkle? I do remember Twinkle. I don't remember any of their songs, but I remember the name. Now, you were Kim (laughs) from The Muffs playing Tomorrow Night at the Commodore. What about your early years? Flea. Spanish flea. Oh, my God. How did you remember about that? That's so crazy. Nardware, you did your research. I played Spanish flea at the <laughs> on my second grade talent show, and I made one mistake, and I got really mad at myself, and I kept beating myself up. I was seven, 
and I was wearing a cool mod dress that had purple and white, and my mom made it. And um, people were really nice to me afterwards. Like, they treated me like a little celebrity. It was very cute. And um, and because uh, usually nobody cared about me. I was super unpopular. So it was, it was kind of, it made a mark on me, I think. The Fad. The band The, the Fad. Fad. I used to go out with Dave from The Fad. What did you look like then? I looked the same, exactly. I looked exactly the same as I do now. <laughs> Now, what were the fa- I, what what were the fads like? Who played the cavern? I love the fad. Um, they were they. What what you're asking me? What they were like? Yeah. What what were they like? What did they you look like, like? Who played the cavern? Oh my god! Well, first of all, the fad sounded a lot like the early Hanna Barbera records, um, the, like the Yogi Bear and the Fred Flintstone records that Hanna Barbera put out. They basically sounded like that. Which was cool. I like that, like stringy, cool leads and stuff. And um, is that why you put a Scooby Doo on your bass? I probably yeah. I'm I I was always super immature, so I I was yeah. Scooby Doo's awesome. In a but there's a, like the Scooby Doo actually has one of my songs on there, one of the Muff songs on there. Where it, it comes around every once in a while, I see it. Really? Scooby-Doo. Yeah, Scooby-Doo. <laughs> uh, oh, is that Fruitopia ad still around? What, is what? Weren't you on a Fruitopia ad? We were on it. We, for about th- three years, we were on um, Fruitopia was running um, our songs. But then Fruitopia went out of business. So that was it for Fruitopia. That- I never tasted it. That's a kind of sum up what people are going to get tomorrow night at the Commodore. Scooby-Doo meets Fruitopia, the muffs. Yes, it's going to be exactly like that. No, we're going to we're just going to rock out. That's that's basically what we do. And tomorrow night at the Commodore, it is needles and pins, chicks dig it, the smugglers and the muffs, the muffs. as part of Grant Lawrence's Dirty Windshields book I think the release. We're going on before the smugglers, and um, it's a very, very early show. So people need to come out and they could see us and go to bed early if they wanted to. I was curious, Kim of the Muffs, early Paula Pierce, I didn't realize that Paula Pierce, rest in peace, was part of Kim Fowley's punk rock weekend at the Whiskey? Oh, is that right? You know, I, Paula ran, Paula was super young when she was doing weird stuff with like old men like Kim Fowley. <laughs> I, it was really weird. Yeah, no, Kim Sally was a derelict. Oh, what do you know nowadays, since you are basically singing a lot of Paula's songs about Paula's early years, like your band Action Now did the song Stop Pretending, the direct I hits, know. the digits, where did, you know, what about, Paul, you know, the early career of Paula? You know, early Paula was really into the who, and she wanted to be... Pete Townsend, basically, and uh, I can relate to that to this day because I love The Who and I love Pete Townsend, so I could totally relate to that. And um, but then she met someone who influenced her to like really be into garage rock music, and so she rejected all that early stuff. 
Oh, yeah, where did Paula find rare covers? She said that people sent her rare covers. Where did you find rare covers in the Pandoras? Rare covers? Oh, you mean like old, old, um, the, old non no, uh, non comp songs? Knows. Yeah, that nobody knows. Yeah. Where did she find I that? I don't know where she found that at the record store. I guess like her. She knew a lot of people who had really amazing record collections, and I think she also did. But, um, yeah, no, that's the best kind of cover to do. You don't want somebody to cover Chinese rock, some stupid song like that. You want somebody to cover something you've never heard in your whole life. And you recently covered The Mindbenders, an amazing version of The Mindbenders. Oh, th- thank you. To Sir, to Sir. It's a good song. Uh, what good can song. you say about that particular song? Um, it, we did it in one take, and we and I stuck my voice on it, and that was it. It would, I don't even think it's really mixed. Oh, we are gonna pl- we are gonna play that. It's getting oh, harder all the time by the mind benders, as interpreted by the Pandoras. Brand new from the Pandoras, brand new. But, but I was listening to some old Pandoras, yeah. and um, since you know the garage years, you had a record called Rock Hard by the Pandoras. Yeah. You were quite sexual in the band, weren't you? <laughs> Me? No, I was the one kicking people in the face from the stage. I was like, I was not trying to be sexy at all. I was, I was antagonistic. Uh, but the lyrics, though, the lyrics were a, a oh, pretty sexual, yeah. weren't they? They were. It was embarrassing to us in the band. Like, who, uh, Paula was really into it, but we were just all very, very, very embarrassed by it. Like when you had a song called Rock Hard, you really meant <laughs> Rock Hard. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and we are speaking. And we are speaking here to Kim of the Muffs, Muffs, playing tomorrow night at the Commodore Ballroom. You also recently went to Buenos Aires. We did. It was amazing. I love Argentina. I love South America. It was really fun. Who is Ooh. Who is Little Miss Disaster? Oh, she she was um, she was following us around with a camera. Um, especially when we get to the venue and then she would just be there taking pictures all over the place. And it turns out she's pretty good. She's how, actually really good. How did it compare to local gigs at the Roxy or the Troop? How well known are the Muffs in Buenos Aires? I, you know, it, we, we had a nice crowd. It was really, it was really heartwarming. Actually, we were, we get, get to this ginormous venue and we're like, what? Oh my God, really? So we're going to headline a place this big? And then, I don't know, it was cool. It was excellent. What bands really What bands are they into there? I don't know. I don't know because I don't speak Spanish and it was hard for me to know, but it um, seems like they like rock and roll pretty much. What were the other bands, Kim Shattuck from the Muffs, playing at the Cavern when you were in the Pandora's? You meant, what were there the other the, bands? There was Untold Fables. There was uh, the Telltale Heart. There was um, the Fad, of course. There was um, Miracle Workers, um, the Fuzz Tones, the, the uh, oh yeah, the Unclaimed. There was. It's a bunch of yeah no it was cool oh what was it called the um, looking through the or through the looking glass 
Kim Shattuck of the Muffs, what was the idea behind the Alyssa Milano paper towel picture that you took? What was that? I don't even know what that is. There was Alyssa Alyssa Milano. Oh, the paper towel. Oh, yeah. I just thought it was weird that she had her own um, paper towels. (laughs) It's like kind of my goal. I, I was just like, wow. What do you do when you're an actress who doesn't get work? Oh, you you have your own designer paper towels. <laughs> I thought that was really weird. Kim Shattuck, did a magician get you into the Pixies? A magician get you into the Pixies? <laughs> no, but a magician got me out of the Pixies, actually. <laughs> a baboom. Who was the magician? A, an old dude named David Lovering. He got me fired from the Pixies. <laughs> but didn't he get you into the Pixies? You knew no, him. No, um, Charles did. Black Francis did. But had you known the magician before? No, I had not, actually. I, I've i never met David. I, I met Joey before, and I met um, Charles before, but I never met David until... And you are Kim Shattuck of the Muffs, and also you are represented in the Muffs by Roy. Is Roy nearby? Roy is not nearby. Roy is back in um, California right now because he's um, flying out tomorrow. Is Ronnie around? Ronnie is around. He's right behind me. Would you like to speak with him? A couple words with Ronnie from the Muffs. Ronnie, here's Nardwar. We are speaking to Ronnie from the Muffs. Nardwar. Hello, Ronnie. Hello, Nardwar. Great to talk to you. We are also here at the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show with Larry Livermore. What? The potato men. Larry. Yes. (laughs) And Larry was saying he met you first time when you kicked him in the head. I didn't actually actually meet him. Uh, I met his foot. (laughs) <laughs> wow, I didn't know that was. I didn't know that. I don't know that story, Larry. Is that true? I'm af- I'm afraid it is. I, I just heard Kim talking about kicking people in the head, but this was definitely not Kim. Uh, uh, oh my! I'm sure it wasn't met with malice. Sometimes I, I used to like just kind of put my foot against people and push them. Yes, it, yes, you did. I can't remember the venue. It was not. It was not Gilman. It was uh, some kind of place where there was a lot of alcohol going on. And God, I'm sorry, Larry. Probably about a year book. or so before I actually met you in person when you went on tour with uh, Cub and uh, the Potato Men. That's right. I remember that tour. Well, I hope that story is not in your book. No, it's on Nardware's uh, radio show. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. And you are Ronnie of the Muffs. Ronnie, Frank Sinatra's masterer did the first Muffs album? That's right. Lee Hirschberg. Uh, He wasn't supposed to. We ran out of money and we rejected two other masterings. And Lee was working the Warner Brothers studio in the basement at that point. And he was... uh, he was at the end of his career, and uh, I can't say he, he was into the project, but yes, he that, mastered that record, and it's not a very good mastering, the original mastering. How old was he at that point? Ah, I, I, I would guess he was in his early 70s. Which gig were Warner Brother reps on their way to when they actually signed you instead of the band they were supposed to sign? Oh, my 
It was a show at the Coconut Teaser where we were down the bill, and the headliner was a band from L.A., long forgotten, called Trash Can School. Uh, they were going to get signed. They Well, I don't know if they were going to get signed, but but Dave Katznelson was, went there to see them. Uh, uh, and he saw them, and they didn't get signed. I'll, I'll, let me put it that way. And you, Ronnie, also worked with Robin Williams? We did. We were in a film with uh, Robin Williams and Billy Crystal, directed by Ivan Reitman, called Father's Day. Always wanted to work with those guys, so it was a dream come true. How did that compare to Crosstown Traffic, the failed pilot that you were in? Yes, Crosstown Traffic, well, that was, that was another dream come true. It was an Aaron Spelling production, uh, where we'd start alongside Tone Loke, but we didn't actually meet Tone Loke, so... When we, when we got a copy of the show, we got to hear Tone Loke say, we got a stalker obsessed with Kim Shattuck in the muffs. <laughs> and you... all the detectives, they, 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 look, they look at each other funny, and he goes, that's right, I said the muffs. They make fun of our name in the show is what I'm trying to say. I love the pilot. You got a copy, and you gave it to me. Why did it not work? Because it was amazing. I know. It was amazing. And, you know, people, they, they got mad when they found out we had a copy. So we're, I'm lucky that I got that copy that we never would have seen it near you. What has Kim told you about the Pandoras? Um, well, so nothing I can say on the radio. I hung around the Pandoras a bit. It was like a, it, it was not for the fan at heart. It was not, it was not for the young people. What was Kim like in the Pandoras versus what will people see tomorrow night? Uh, Kim, Kim, I don't want to say Kim is mellow, but Kim, Kim is not the same Kim that was in the Pandoras. Kim, Kim and the Pandoras would run away from the tour manager. She would like go to rooftops and, you know, she'd go to bars and, and get pictures with her shirt, you know, off. Is she still she'd kicking people in the head? Tubs. She'd fall. Uh, she will kick somebody in the head if, if they're being unfair to us. Yeah. I will not stand near the stage just to be safe. No, no, no. We're, we're, it's a fine. You won't deserve it, Larry. If somebody. If somebody yells, get your, you know, get your chest out. I didn't feel I deserved it. When you kicked me in the head either, it was my first time seeing the Muffs, and I'd heard so many good things about the Muffs. And everybody was raving about them, and uh, I went and got kicked in the head. I was, uh, It was a little disappointing. I'm sorry, Larry. I'm going to hug you tonight when I see you at the uh, I'll outside. I'll count on that. Uh, okay. Grant mentions in his book, Dirty Windshields, about him being thrown down the stairs at the Commodore. So I guess it was kind of rough at that era. It was and, rough in that and era. And to be fair, Grant probably invited that sort of treatment on, on occasion. Ba-boom. <laughs> and again, we're speaking here to Larry Livermore and... Ronnie from the band the Muffs and Larry will be tonight reading at What's Up Dog on Hastings Street and Ronnie will be playing tomorrow night as part of the Muffs, the Needles and Pins, the Chicks Digging and the Smugglers at the Commodore. Ronnie, did you turn down Reebok? Did the Muffs turn down Reebok? We did turn down Reebok. Uh, it, it was right when our uh, third album, Happy Birthday to Me, was coming out in 97. And we still stupidly thought it had a chance at the label, and we didn't want to give away a song uh, from the record. It was it was right when the record came out, or even before the record came out, they, they heard it somehow. And um, yeah, we turned down Reebok. They wanted our song "Honeymoon." The uh, you know, back then, too, having a song in a commercial was a little, you know. Now, 
nowadays bands strive to get you know they want to get in commercials before they put out records but back then it was a little still a little different who took the actual commercial instead of you you turn it down who got it yeah you know i i don't know you know reebok went under shortly thereafter so i don't want to say we killed reebok but it's possible good luck if you did yeah <laughs> Uh, Ronnie, also, you had a picture of Times Square on 8-Track. That's amazing. Times Square on 8-Track? Where did you get that? Yeah, I have. I collect 8-Track, so I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of good... Yeah, that Times Square is sealed, by the way. I would have brought it for you, Nardwar. I would have given it to you. I didn't know you, want, I didn't know you were so into it. Oh, what 8-Tracks uh, do you have of New Wave variety? Uh, new Wave, I have... Um, Richard Hell, I have uh, the Jam in the city. I have several Elvis Costello ones. I have the Double Sandinista by The Clash. Um, what else? I have Phil Seymour, first album. I have Fabulous Poodles on 8-Track. Oh, that's um, amazing. How many of those are sealed? Uh, I would say about half of what I just mentioned. The Clash? No, The Clash is open. And we are speaking here to Ronnie of the band The Muffs. You also ran into Mel Brooks and Lou Reed? Uh, I, I, I've run into Lou Reed, not Mel Brooks. You've assigned I, Mel Brooks records. I do. I obtained, you know, I, I've always worked in record stores. and You never know what's going to come through. And uh, Yeah, I have that, that box set of the 2,000-year-old man box set signed by Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. I was thinking, what is left? What is left for you? You have, Ronnie, all these 8-tracks sealed. What is left? You have all these pictures. Who is on a what list? What do you... There is nothing, right? Uh, you know what? It used to be Madonna, but that, that has faded over the years. But uh, I have never run into Madonna anywhere. But, again, I, I, that's, I don't care about that anymore now. So do now I, I just want to hang with Larry Livermore tonight. That's all I want. Well, you can at What's Up, Dog. And, of course, you also played with Death, Dickies, and the Dwarves. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We've played with all the above in our career. What do you think about that? I think that was one gig, Death, the Dickies, and the Dwarves. Uh, was Death on that bill? Was, I know we played with the Dickies several times. Um well, I know we played with Death in Hamburg at a place called the Mark Thal, or Mark Hall, however you pronounce it. And Death was in the big room, and we were in the small little club room. That was about 95. Did you play with any rap? You mentioned Tone oh, Loke. Did you, you play the with... Death. I'm sorry. You mean the other Death. The you... one with the move. Yes, I'm sorry. Did that you... was one gig. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was just curious. You mentioned Tone Loke. Did you play with any rap at all on any festivals? Yeah, once we played, we were on a, a festival bill with um, uh, Del the Funky Homo Sapien. Where was that? That was in Santa Barbara. It was. Uh, I think I'm almost. That was probably in '93 or so. That's right. I know you're a big hip hop guy now, Nardwar. Uh, I was just curious, you know, how that was yes. happening. Um, and actually, winding up here, um, we're just going to say, Larry, come over to your mic. Um, Larry is still here. Um, <laughs> yes, I am, but I've got to go get ready for the event tonight. Okay, well, um, just in the odd chance that I don't cap catch up with you, Larry, um, anything you want to plug about tonight? I, I think um, it will be well worth it just to... Uh, see the master in his element i'm talking about of course grant lawrence uh, a great author a great raconteur 
and a, and a great representative of the city of Vancouver. Uh, so uh, please come on down and listen to him and uh, and hear selections from his uh, his new book. Oh, well, thank you. Dirty very, fingernails is uh, what. Uh, thank you very much, Larry. And doot do loot do doot doot. And we are still here with Ronnie from the band The Muffs. Ronnie, are you still there? I'm still here. We just got to the hotel, so I probably have to go in a second. I just want to say, the first time I met Grant Lawrence, he was up in a tree. Uh, where, remember that Nardwar? Uh, no, where was that? That show, our first time we played here in Vancouver, and it was like, I think it was a CITR event. Right. Okay, at the Cruel Elephant. At the Cruel Elephant. That's right. And the evaporators played, I'm pretty sure. And Grant was up a tree? Grant was up in a tree. I, I don't remember why he was in a tree, but he was he was in a tree. What are we going to expect tomorrow night from The Muffs? Will we see some of Dee Dee's rap album covered? <laughs> I'll, try, I will try, I'll put that on the set list. My bandmates will probably ignore it. But yeah, I, I would like to do I love that album. Right now, we are going to end with a couple songs from your Burger release, Getting Harder All the Time. And we actually played Weird Boy next door. What can you say about Getting Harder All the Time? Well, the first thing I want to say, Getting Harder, that's the Pandora's you're about to play. Oh, okay, uh, sorry. Um, that's okay, that's okay. I'm it's glad. The cover, though, it's on their forthcoming record, which is coming out in November. So this is an early scoop for you. And the song we are going to play before that is Take a Take, I Me. Ah, yes, Take a Take Me. This is uh, one of our favorites from, from uh, the last album, which is almost three years old at this point. But. And we will be hearing that tomorrow night? You will actually be hearing that tomorrow night, yes. Well, thank you very much, Ronnie. Anything you want to add to the people out there at all? Uh, I just want to add uh, that I'm sorry that it's taken us 20 years. I think it's actually been 18 years since we were here. But I'm sorry it's taken so long to get back up here. But we're looking forward to playing the Commodore. And, uh, yeah, get there. All the bands are great, so get there early. And to reward listeners for listening this long on the show, if you phone in 604-822-2487, that's 604-822-2487, you can win free tickets tomorrow night to see the Smugglers, The Muffs, Chicks Ticket, and Needles and Pins at the Commodore. Your name will be on the guest list. Again, 604-822-2487 for your free tickets. Well, thank you very much, Ronnie and Kim. Keep on rocking in the free world. And do-do-loot-do. Do-do. Not to think about you To keep you up